Nehemiah chapter 10. We are going to continue. And let me just say too, I want to say publicly another thank you. Um, We celebrated Vacation Bible School last Sunday. Ashton did an incredible job sharing the message last week. And um, I just want to say thank you again to him and Hannah and Nicole and Susan. I know y'all are in here somewhere. I just don't know where you are. Um, I love all y'all. And can we just thank them one more time for an incredible, um, incredible week of Vacation Bible School. It was so awesome. So awesome. Um, So two weeks ago is the last time we were in Nehemiah and we looked in chapter 9. And in chapter 9 we saw a picture of the people's response to the realization of their sin. And their response to their sin was grief. It was conviction. And, um, you know, conviction should come upon us whenever we're in a place where we are focusing on the character and the nature and the reality of who God is. Anytime we exalt God for who he is, it should be a reminder to us who we are. When we're singing songs like we're singing today, at the same time in our minds we're, we're exalting and glorifying Jesus, at the same time there should be humility and conviction in our hearts as we worship because we're comparing, we're, we're focusing on who he is and at the same time we can't help but know who we are in light of who he is. And that's what we saw in chapter 9. They were seeing themselves in the light of God's goodness, in the light of God's faithfulness, And it broke their hearts. And we talked about how their hearts were broken over sin. And not just the sin around them, but the sin in their own lives. And not just the sins of their fathers, but their own sin. But there was a a generational, national sin that they were mourning over. But there was also a personal sin that they they were part. They had continued the, the pattern of sin that their fathers had uh, established before them just that, that arrogance before God, that pride. And we have to also learn how to grieve our own sin. And that's what we talked about, how, how maybe it's too easy for us to overlook it or make excuses for it, but rather to, to experience real grief and conviction um, over our sin. And so chapter 10 is going to be sort of the next step in that in that process it's one thing it is a good thing for us to grieve over our sin but that is not the the end if 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 we get stuck in grief over our sin and we don't go somewhere because of that then then we're missing the point of conviction in the first place if, if the grief of conviction hasn't moved us to action, then it's not completed its work in us. You see that? Like we, and sometimes we can get caught in the grief of our sin and just stay there, can't we? And we can just stay there and talk about how awful it is and, oh, I struggle with this and I struggle with that and I wish I didn't. And, and, and if, we, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves staying in that place and not moving to where conviction is, is meant, what it's meant to do is to move us. And so that's the big point I want us to begin with this morning. Conviction is meant to lead us into commitment. 
If we just get stuck in the, in the grief of conviction and, oh, how terrible I am and before the Lord, like, yes, that is, that is true, and, that, and that's part of, of what we should experience in our relationship with God. But conviction isn't the end. Conviction is what is supposed to move us toward commitment. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 10 when you read chapter 10. Um, we're not going to read the whole chapter. Again, we're going to talk about the entire chapter, but I'm just going to pull a few verses. I'm going to summarize some of the things in chapter 10 for you um, just for the sake of understanding and time. But I want us to look at the kind of commitment that we see the people make in chapter 10 and evaluate our own commitments in, in, that we have made in our relationship with the Lord. Uh, so, I want us to go back actually and, and flip backwards just a little bit and look at the very last verse of chapter 9. Because we saw the, that big prayer that they prayed, that prayer of, of repentance that they prayed. And then the very last verse of chapter 9 is verse 38. And this is what it says. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement in writing on a sealed document containing the names of our leaders, Levites, and priests. So at the end of chapter 9, we see this lament, this confession of sin, national sin, personal sin. They've grieved over their sin. But then at the end of chapter 9, there's a, there's a point of decision that has to be made. And they realize we can't just stop in our feelings of conviction. That conviction is leading us to do something. What are we going to do? There was a deciding moment at the end of that confrontation with their sin. And whenever we're confronted with the reality of our guilt and God's goodness, it will always call us to make a decision. It will always call us to make a choice. And so their choice was, are we going to continue in the rebellion and the disregard for God's instruction that we've seen in our fathers, that we have, um, that we have been guilty of ourselves? Are we going to continue just doing the same thing? Or are we going to commit to follow the law that we've disregarded? And so their decision is, we're going to decide to follow. And, and they make, um, they choose repentance and, and repentance is, is different than, than forgiveness. Sometimes we get those things mixed up and we think, oh, my, my sorrow over my sin and asking God to forgive me, that's all I need to do. But what God calls us to is repentance. And repentance means that we stop our movement in a particular direction and we change direction and go a different way. Repentance isn't just stopping. Repentance is stopping going this way and deciding I'm going to go a different way and to start moving. So they express their commitment in a public written covenant which was signed by all the leaders and all of the leaders of the families. And so what you see in chapter 10, if you look at it, all the way through verse 27, it's another big long list of names that we're not going to read. But, yeah, I'll let somebody else come read it if they want to, but I'm not going to try. A record of all of the names, and this was important because this was a, 
This was a signed, sealed, written covenant that they were making before God. And I don't know that we really understand the depth of the seriousness of this when we read it in our culture because we don't, we don't necessarily make commitments to God this way all the time. Um, but I want us to look, if you look in chapter 10, go down to verses 28 and 29. After that list of names, this is what it says. The rest of the people... So it wasn't just the names that were listed that were making this commitment. This was a, a representation. These names was a representation of the collective of all the people. So verse 28, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and temple servants, along with their wives, sons, and daughters, everyone who is able to understand and who has separated themselves from the surrounding peoples to obey the law of God. That pretty much covers everybody. Verse 29. Join with their noble brothers and commit themselves with a sworn oath to follow the law of God given through God's servant Moses and to obey carefully all the commands, ordinances, and statutes of the Lord our Lord. This was a big commitment. And these men signed their names and sealed this document as a visual representation of the commitment that they were making. So this was, this was not something, this was not just them saying that they were going to do it and then maybe they will, maybe they won't. This was a serious commitment that they were making and they were making it publicly. So serious, I want you to note in verse 29, there's a phrase there, and your Bible may translate it a little different, where the CSB says, and commit themselves with a sworn oath. If you study that a little deeper, what that actually means is that there was a curse that was involved in that sworn oath. And they were making an oath to the Lord that also included a curse that said, God, if we don't follow through with our commitments, we understand that bad things will happen and we accept those bad things happening if we don't follow through with our commitment. Now, how often do we pray prayers like that? How often do we make promises to God and say, God, this is what I promise and commit to do for you? And at the same time, if I don't follow through, then I accept and, and ask and give you permission to bring cursed things, bad things into my life, bad circumstances as a result of my disobedience. This is what they were saying. Serious, serious covenant. But there were some characteristics about their commitment in chapter 10 that I want to summarize and highlight for you and I want us to think about the kinds of commitments we make to God as God's people maybe the commitments that we make to God and maybe maybe what God wants is for us to think about the commitments that we don't make as much as the ones that we do um, I don't know how serious we really are about commitments I think that word commitment in our lives and in our culture has really been watered down, don't you? I think the word um, 
commitment means a lot of different things to a lot of people. I want you to think this morning, what in your life can you say you are fully committed to? What, what things are you fully, completely committed to in a covenant that is similar to what we see here? What covenants exist in your life? And you say, well, well what exactly is a covenant? I'm talking about what are the things in your life that you are so committed to that you are unwilling to stop it, miss it, replace it, or ever overlook it? That, that missing, overlooking, replacing this thing in your life is not even an option. It's not even a decision that you have to make on a regular basis. Like it's, it's a decision that you've made and it, and it stands. And nothing will ever compromise it. This is the kind of commitment that we're, that we're talking about here. I don't know how much we really commit to like this. We commit to things in word that we don't always commit to in deed, right? Um, and we commit for short periods of time, but the, but the idea of covenant is something that, that lasts a long, long time. Um, there were some commitments that they made in this chapter, and those commitments are in verses 30 through 39. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of details in that. And I just want to kind of summarize for you what verses 30 through 39. Um, I, I, I sort of sum them up into like three broad. There are lots of specific commitments that they make. Detailed things as you read that. Um, but I, I sort of broke it down into three big um, themes or, or, or larger umbrellas of commitment that they were making. So the first one was that they committed their relationships to the Lord. Verse 30 talks about their marriages. And what, what started to begin to happen in the people that was disobedient to the Lord, the Lord said, I want you to, to not intermarry with other races, with other um, groups of people, with other nations and pagan nations. And we can sometimes read that and think, um, that that was all about racial purity. It wasn't so much that God gave them that command for the sake of racial purity. It was for the sake of spiritual purity. Because what would happen was as they would engage with these other nations and men would have relationships with women from these other customs and these other traditions and, and nations that worshipped other gods... They would go enter into marriage relationships with them and then the influence of um, their foreign wives would influence them toward foreign customs and foreign practices and those things competed with their allegiance to God. And God said, I want your allegiance to be only to me but when you marry into these other nations, you're being drawn out of the covenant that you've made with me into these traditions and and and." foreign things and it it is drawing you away from me and so they make a commitment in verse 30 to say hey we're going to stop doing that and and earlier where we read and it says that they have separated themselves from the foreign nations that's what it's talking about and there were probably men even in this covenant who who ended their marriage relationships with their wives because they were a part of another nation 
because God has said, I want you to, I want you to remain faithful to me, and you're not going to remain faithful to me when you intermarry into other nations and other traditions. So that was one thing. They committed their, their relationships um, to the Lord as he had commanded. The second thing was they committed to honor the Sabbath. And they talk about that in verse 31. Um, if you go over, uh, if we skipped ahead a little bit into Nehemiah in chapter 13, um, what happens is Nehemiah leaves Jerusalem, goes back to Artaxerxes for a period, and then he, he gets permission to return back to Jerusalem. So when he returns back to Jerusalem, he finds some things all out of whack. The people have already forgotten and there, there is some historical discussion about whether what we read about in chapter 10 takes place before what happens in chapter 13 or if the timeline, it, you remember I told you at the very beginning of this, it's not all chronological. So it could be that this commitment that we're reading in chapter 10 is a result of what Nehemiah saw when he came back that second time in chapter 13. But let me read to you um, what, what he finds in chapter 13 when he comes back in their, their, the way they are regarding the Sabbath is that they're working. They're doing all sorts of work on the Sabbath, and they're doing business and selling goods with outside people. People from outside the other nations were coming into the city. They were selling, and they were buying and doing all these things on the Sabbath, and God in his law said, that's not what the Sabbath is for. And so um, in chapter 13, verses 17 and 18, this is what, Nehemiah, this is sort of his reaction when he comes back and he sees the Sabbath not being set apart. Verse 17, he says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same? So that our God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Nehemiah comes back and he sees them. He's like, how quickly did you forget? God's intention for the Sabbath was that it be set apart for a specific purpose. And you can you read about that. I want to take you to Exodus 23 really quick. And you can, you can reference this and go back to it later. But Exodus 23, starting in verse 10. This is what the Lord says about the Sabbath. He says, Sow your land for six years and gather its produce, but during the seventh year you are to let it rest and leave it uncultivated so that the poor among your people may eat from it and the wild animals may consume what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Verse 12, Do your work for six days, but rest on the seventh day so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as the resident alien may be refreshed. God had established the Sabbath. One, it was a representation of, of the order of creation, right? We saw that when God created in Genesis, that he created everything, on the, and then on the seventh day it says that he rested. So it's a it's a remembrance of, of God's order of creation, but also God says the Sabbath is for a purpose. It's for you to rest. And I don't know that resting is something that we do really well either, and that'll be a whole nother sermon or sermon series if we wanted to talk about Sabbath and, and what that means. 
And I think maybe some of us, if we were to evaluate how we approach the Sabbath as a day that's set apart for worship and rest, maybe some of us do that really well and maybe some of us don't. But for them, it was obvious that they were coming back, that this day that God had set apart to be different than all the others was beginning to look just the same as all the rest of them. They were doing all the same things that they did every other six days of the week. And Nehemiah says, you can't do that. So they, they commit to make the Sabbath set apart again. And, and they're real specific in those things. And then the third thing they talk about quite a bit in verses 32 through 39. They commit to care for the house of the Lord. They commit to care for God's house, to care for the temple. Um, and this included lots of things. This included giving uh, what was appropriate for the maintenance of the temple, like a temple tax, and to maintain the temple and the compensation of the ones who served in the temple on behalf of the people, the Levites, the priests. A portion of what the people gave was not only to maintain the, the house of God, but it was also to provide for the, for the ones who served on a daily basis. There that didn't have jobs outside of that. It's very similar. It's a, it's a similar idea to what you do when you come and you give your tithe to our church family. We use the resources to maintain what we have. Some of that goes into that, and some of that goes in as compensation to the men who are in ministry, the people who are in ministry here that are set apart to serve. And so it's a, it's a very similar picture. Um, they also brought wood for the altar fire. Uh, they talk about that, how the, the, God's command was that the fire on the altar stay burning all the time. And so that required not just for the Levites to, to attend to it and make sure that it was burning, but they needed wood to make sure it burned. And so every family committed to bring wood to contribute to making sure that that fire stayed lit all the time. And then it provided for the priest and the Levites. Uh, but the end of verse 39 in chapter 10 um, kind of sums up the entire idea when it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. And so they made these commitments. They made commitments regarding their relationships with each other and with, with their marriages. They committed their marriages to the Lord. Uh, they made the commitment to, um, to honor the Sabbath, to not disregard it and, and not to treat it like any other day. And then they made these commitments to, to not neglect the house of the Lord, not just in their worship and attendance, but also in their contribution to it. And that is an important part. And all three of those things are things that we should evaluate in our own lives. Do our relationships distract us from our commitment to God? Have we taken the day that God has set aside for us to, for rest and worship? And have we been guilty of filling it up with the things of the world full of the rest of the week where God says, this is a day that's set apart because I want you to rest. I want you to be refreshed. Some of us don't know how to rest because we're constantly going and that's why we're exhausted. And that's why our quality of life has diminished so much. Like, there's a reason that God made a Sabbath. 
And so have we honored that? And then are we committed to care for God's house? There's a context that we can apply to that in our church family. Are we committed not just to show up and be here, but are we committed to invest in it? With, with our resources, with our tithes, with um, our, our volunteer, our work, all of those things. Are we contributing and not neglecting? So they had been guilty of all these things. And they were writing this document because they were committing to do something about it. This was the moment where they said, not just, hey, we're guilty of all these things. But now they came up with a plan. And they said, now we're going to do something about it. And here's what we're going to do. And in this document, they detailed exactly what they were going to do. Again, I think maybe we sometimes have trouble tying conviction and commitment together. Because sometimes we can just get caught up in the feelings of conviction, right? And, and I think part of the reason sometimes that we get caught up in the feelings of conviction is because it feels spiritual to be convicted, doesn't it? It feels like a spiritual thing. It feels like a Christian thing to feel bad about your sin. And for some of us, I think it's easier for us to self-condemn ourselves, to look at the sin in our life and point it out and live in the conviction because it kind of makes us feel more spiritual. But what's more spiritual? Feeling and living in the conviction over our disobedience or acting in a way that moves us toward committing because of our conviction. God said to obey is better than sacrifice, right? Obedience is is what is what he desires. So Commitment and obedience. And another reason I think that we sometimes have trouble moving toward obedience or the commitment is because commitment is always going to involve sacrifice, isn't it? For us to make a commitment to do something means that we're going to give up something. For us to see something that, that God wants us to commit to, For us to grab hold of that completely, it means that we're going to have to drop whatever's already in our hands. And sometimes I think we just live in the conviction of what we're holding on to when God is calling us to a commitment to pick this up. But we're holding on to this. We're feeling bad about it. We're we're feeling the conviction and we feel like that's super spiritual. But while we're telling God how sorry we are and how we wish we didn't struggle with it, we're still holding on to it. And God says, I, don't, I want you to move beyond the conviction, let go of those things, and then commit to what I have for you. Take hold of something better. So commitment and obedience are usually always attached to sacrifice, and that's why it's hard. Because we, we kind of want our cake, and we want our cake, and we want to eat it at the same time. So... I've got three thoughts. You know, uh, application when it comes to reading a chapter like this can be kind of tricky. There's some, there's some parts of the Bible that you read and it's like, wow, it, it just, the application just jumps off the page. But then other times it's like you have to read and really reflect and say, God, what is it that, 
um, that we can learn from what we see here. And I've got three thoughts about the character of commitment. Like what, what does this commitment look like? And if we were to apply these characteristics to the way we make commitments to God, what would change? How much more obedience would we experience? And so just these are almost just like principles about commitment that I think we can pull from chapter 10. Here's the first one. Commitment begins with leadership. Commitment starts with leadership, and here's what I mean. If you look back at the very first verse of chapter 10, what was the first name signed to this covenant? Look at it. Verse 1. Nehemiah. The first one to sign the commitment was Nehemiah. Nehemiah didn't stand in the back. He didn't stand back and say, okay, this is what all y'all need to do. So when all y'all go through and sign this, and I'm I'm sure you're going to do what you say you're going to do, then I'll step up and do my part. That's not what he does. He's the first one. Sometimes I think some of us are being called to be the first one to sign up. But we don't like always being the first one, do we? We want somebody else to go first. But there are certain roles where, where we have to be the first ones to commit. Whatever commitment we have to our leadership role will be the highest commitment that those under us will follow. And here's what I mean by that. I have to understand that whatever commitment that... I want to see in you as a church family is never going to be greater than the commitment that I embrace myself. Basically, I can't ask you to commit to something that I haven't committed to. And Nehemiah knew that. And that's why he said, I'm, I'm going to be the first one. They looked to him. He was the governor. He was the leader. And he said, I'm going to be the first one. And so whatever role of leadership, and you say, well, yeah, Eric, you're the pastor. That's how you, like, I understand that too, even with the staff. I can't ask the, the guys on our staff to commit to something that I'm not willing to commit to. And, and that's not always easy. And you say, well, yeah, that's, that's your thing. That applies to you because you're a pastor. But we've already talked about and we've said before that every one of us has a leadership influence in some capacity. I mean, it's Father's Day, dads. Let's think about that for a minute. What level of commitment to God do you want to see in your kids? What this means is that your kids' commitment to God may not ever be higher than your own. Now, in some cases, it is. Because some of us are products of that. Some of us have a, have a commitment to God that far outweighs that of our parents. And that's, and that's awesome. I'm not saying that that never happens. But if you are here with your family and, 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 and you come to church and you bring your family to church every week, there is, a, there is a level of commitment that you're called to, to lead. And if I want my family 
to be committed to certain spiritual disciplines, then I have to commit to them. So it, it, it begins with leadership. There's a, there's a leadership principle. I should, as a dad, I should be calling my wife and my kids into obedience through my own obedience. And so it's unfortunate that, that too many times we see maybe it's not dad who's leading the family spiritually it might be mom and mom if you are keep doing it don't stop because scripture is also very clear that God will use you sometimes to draw your husband into commitment or or, or some of there are wives and moms who have a commitment um, to the Lord where their wives or their husbands aren't even believers and scripture is very clear to to love your husband and love the Lord in a way that draws him, to let him see your commitment to God, to draw him into that. But every one of us have a, have a leadership role that we play. And the, and the level of commitment that we exhibit will influence the level of commitment of whoever we lead, whether it be in our families, our jobs, or our churches. Here's the second thing about commitment. Commitment goes public. Commitment goes public. Because we're really good at commitment up here, aren't we? Uh, I commit to all kinds of stuff. Every day. Multiple times. In a, in a, multiple times a week I make commitments in my head, but they never come out of my mouth. Because what happens if they come out of my mouth and somebody might hold me accountable to it, right? If I say something about it, if I tell Kim, I, I may think, well, today I'm going to get this done. But I may not tell her that's my intention. Because if I tell her, hey, today I promise I'm going to do this, then when I don't get it done, I'm going to be held accountable for it, right? So I'll commit to it, but I keep the commitment up here. And I don't let it out. The people we see in Nehemiah 10 are willing to commit publicly. They are, that's, that's the whole point of this document. It's a public confession. They're proclaiming their commitment, sealing it in this, in this covenant. Private commitments aren't really something that we see in Scripture, is it? Anytime we're called to commit to something... In, in regards to our relationship with the Lord, it's almost always called to be a public commitment. You know why? Because private commitments don't last. They don't, they don't change anything. They, they, they're so easily, they're, they, eat, they disappear just as quickly as they, as they come. And think about the kind of covenants that, we're, that, that we make in Scripture, in scripture that are public. What, what about your marriage? Do you commit to a marriage covenant without a public thing? You know what? You have, you have witnesses at your wedding, right? Even if you have a small wedding, you've got people there who are watching. You make a commitment to one another publicly before other people. Because that's a, that's, a, that's a covenant. That's a commitment. That's a public commitment. 
when you are baptized as a believer, when you give your life to Christ and you say, well, what's the big deal about baptism? If we believe it's Baptist, that the water doesn't do anything to make me any more saved, why is it a big deal? Because your salvation is called to be a public commitment. Jesus wasn't about calling secret disciples. Everybody that he called, he called to follow in public. Our baptism is a public testimony of our faith. Church membership is a public commitment. It's when you, when you decide that, that you love this church or any church. And you decide, this is, this is where I'm going to commit to serve. This is where I'm going to commit to give. This is where I'm going to commit to worship and be involved and invest in the lives of other people. Like, it's an important thing. When you guys that have lately, and you have whether it was 50 years ago, when you step out and you come stand, but you walk down that aisle doing the invitation and, and you say, I want to be a part of this church, I want to join this church, you're making a public covenant with everybody in this church family to say, I'm investing, I'm, I'm going to do something here. But you realize that as you sit there and you watch somebody come join the church, you're also making a public covenant with them to say, we are going to bring you in as part of this church family. We're going to love you. We're going to support you. We're going to minister to you. They are making a covenant with this family. This family is making a covenant with them. It's a, it's a big deal. It's an important thing. And some people, I, I, I think... Maybe the whole idea of church membership, even now in this age and culture, has become kind of not so big deal. And people just kind of jump from church to church and they don't really join or invest anywhere. But, it, but it's something that's really important. So commitment should be something that goes public. We see this as a public commitment. You make a public commitment, you're much more likely to stick with it. Private commitments fade away quickly. But public ones seal our decision in a unique way and they give accountability and it keeps us from compromise. Or it at least helps us recognize compromise when it happens. It's not that if you make a public commitment then you're always going to get it right because you're not. You're going to mess up. But because there's a public commitment involved it at least helps you recognize when you fall through on that commitment. And public commitment seals that commitment in a different way. I've talked to people over the years, and, and you may be one of these people. I've talked to people over the years that, that will say, you ask them about their relationship with the Lord, and they say, yes, I've, I've, I've prayed that prayer. I've, I've felt convicted. I've asked the Lord to uh, I, I come into my heart. I've, I've, I think I'm saved. But they've never publicly professed that faith. They've never been baptized. With folks like that, it's very easy for them to be like, oh, I just don't know. Maybe I am. I think I am. You say, well, why is it that God calls us to a public? Why, why is this example of, of public baptism as a profession of faith? It, it, it seals. Do you remember, if you're a baptized believer in the house, you understand and you know what I'm talking about. There's something that seals the validity and the commitment that you make to God when you step into those waters and you publicly pro profess to everyone there. You, in your body, exemplify what God has done in the recreation of, from your old life dying and, and you're, you're raised to a new life in Christ. It solidifies your commitment in a way that, that you can't experience if you don't do that. It's different. 
So commitment should be a public thing. Luke chapter 9, verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, for what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the Holy Angels. Jesus was not about private commitment. It was all public. And then the last one is commitment gets specific. That's number three. Not only is commitment public, commitment gets specific. The more generalized our commitments are, the easier they are to compromise, right? I mean, think about it. How many times maybe in your life have you said, well, we're going to start going back to church? Well, what does that mean? Well, when? That's, there's a specific detail that needs to, you, you got to figure out when. <laughs> you got to figure out, like, who's going? Like, wh- wh- like, what does that mean? Well, we're going to, you know, what day? How often? I mean, you could, people could say, well, we're going we're gonna to go back to church and it'll be Christmas. And they'll still have fulfilled that commitment because that's a pretty general commitment, isn't it? Commitment gets specific. And when you read chapter 10, there are all these very specific things in it. Instructions that the people, we're going to give this much percent of this and, and this much of this. And, and this is what we're going to commit to. They're very specific. The people got specific, and and those specific things became boundaries for their commitment. I think maybe some of us have found ourselves lacking in our commitment to the Lord because we don't want to let God and the Holy Spirit get specific in our life. You say, well, I want to, I want to, I want to be more committed to God. How many times have you said that or heard somebody say, I, just, I want to be more committed to God, Jesus? Okay, that's awesome. How are you going to do that? Start with something specific. And, 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 and like, how are we going to do that? Well, I'm going to start reading my Bible. Well, when, when are you going to do that? When are you going to start? What time of day are you going to set aside for that? What part of the Bible are you going to start reading? How much time are you going to set aside? And after you read it, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to journal? Are you going to use a devotional book? Are you just going to read scripture and, and pray? Like, what, what's your plan? Like, get specific. The more specific your commitment gets, the easier it is to follow through with it. But when we put out these just general umbrella commitments, well, I'm just going to do this, that's why we don't follow through with any of them. Because we're, there's nothing specific about it. They give God specific things. God, we're going to do this and this and this as a follow-through with the commitment that we're making. So we're called into a covenant relationship with God, and a covenant requires commitment. And you say, wow, Eric, this whole message is just all about commit, commit, commit. This is what you're not doing. That's not what I mean for it to be. But I kind of do. Because this is part of what we are called to. We are called to make movement. We are called not just to say and believe, but we are called to do, to act, to be specific in our obedience. But you say, well, if, if our covenant is about obedience, 
I don't always obey, Eric. What happens when I mess up? Does that mean the covenant between me and God is broken? Every time, that almost sounds like a real works-based salvation, doesn't it, Eric? That if my obedience is my commitment, I express my commitment to him through my obedience, what happens when I mess up? Does that mean my covenant relationship with him is broken? No, that's the good news of the gospel. That's what the gospel means. The commitment we make to God is only possible because he's made a commitment first to us. The reason God's people were still able to make this commitment to him in Nehemiah chapter 10 is because all of those times that they had broken God's law, his covenant with them remained intact. The whole time. And if you are a believer in Christ, the thing that will empower you to be specific and make commitments to him and follow through in obedience is because of his faithfulness to you. Because of the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith. And it is not of yourselves. It's not of words. So that nobody can boast about it. That's the good news of commitment. So that's why God can call us to commit. Because he's already committed himself. He's committed himself to bringing us into the kingdom. He has proven that he's never going to leave us or forsake us. And so he calls us to follow through in commitment back to him. And when we fall and we fail, it doesn't mean that the covenant's broken because we didn't make the covenant first, he did. It begins with leadership. What is a commitment that God has put on your heart that you know he's calling you to step up and do first? Maybe it's in your home. Maybe it's in this church. Maybe it's, it's something. What, what is a leadership commitment that he's calling you to? What commitment needs to be public? There are some of us in this room that have made private commitments to God. And we've said, God, we're going to do this. Your, your salvation, it may be that, that you've given your life to the Lord, but you've not told anybody. And you're struggling with it. The reason you're struggling with it is because you've not made it public. Some of you, maybe you've been coming to church here for 10 years, but you've never decided, hey, I'm gonna, I want to join. <laughs> and this isn't an appeal to try to get a whole bunch of people to join in one service. Don't, don't think that. But it's something that you should begin to think about. What, what commitment have I made to God that, that needs to be a public commitment? Maybe I need to share it with, with my family. I need to share it with my church. What, what is that? And then what specific changes is he calling you to to fulfill a promise that you've already made? Maybe you've made one of those generalized commitments and told God, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But, and maybe even during this message, the Holy Spirit has shown you specific things and says, well, if that's a commitment you want to make to me, why don't we start here? Why don't you commit to do this? What are those? And I don't know what those are because I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm not, I don't know what those are in your heart. But that's what this time is for. As we go into this time, I want you to begin to think about those questions. God calls us to a level of commitment. But we're only empowered to be committed to him because of the commitment that he's already made in a relationship with us.